New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. In these perilous days of planetary polycrises, I'm finding that I'm turning more and more toward poetry. More than the torrent of data and information that is coming from an increasingly polarized and rageful culture, it's poetry that's enlivening my heart. It's poetry that takes me to a grander landscape and leads me to the wholeness of things. It helps me to stand from a vantage point that includes wonder and awe. It can also reveal this broader landscape without denying the dangers and the challenges humanity faces. And that will be our subject today with our guest, award-winning poet Jane Hirschfield. Jane Hirschfield is the author of 10 books of poetry and two collections of essays and has created and co-translated four books presenting the work of world poets from the past. A resident of Northern California, she is a Chancellor Emerita of the Academy of American Poets. In 2017, Hirschfield organized Poets for Science, component for the main Washington, D.C. March for Science, held January 24, 2017, in protest for the removal of scientific information from federal agency websites. She has curated an interactive exhibit of science poems and writings housed at Kent State's Wick Poetry Center, which has traveled to venues across the country. Her most recent book of poetry is entitled The Asking, New and Selected Poems. I'm speaking with Jane Hirschfield at her home in Northern California by remote connection. Join us for the next hour as we explore how living language of poetry enlivens us in dark times with our guest, Jane Hirschfield. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jane, welcome once more to New Dimensions. Oh, thank you, Justine. What you said was so beautiful about why we might need to turn to poetry in these times. And, you know, I almost just feel as if I should sit back for the next hour and let you just talk. Um, but I'm delighted to represent the art form for this hour for our listeners. 
Oh, excellent. I am so glad you're up for it because I have just been immersing myself in your poetry for, you know, several weeks now. And it's just like on my heart. And I'm so excited to talk to you. And what I want to do is to start off with a poem. And the poem that I chose to start off with is called 10. And to help our listeners understand it, that's not the number 10. It's like the metal tin, T-I-N. So I would love for you, first of all, to read the poem, and then I'd love for us to talk about it. Of course. Tin. I studied much and remembered little, but the world is generous. It kept offering figs and cheeses. Never mind that soon I'll have to give it all back. The world the figs. To be a train station of existence is no small matter. It doesn't need to be Grand Central or Hyderpasha Station. The engine shed could be low, windowed with coal dust under a slat-shingled roof. It could be tin. Another mystery bandaged with rivets and rubies leaking cold and heat in both directions, as the earth does. I'm just riveted by this poem. You take us on such a journey on it. First of all, when you talk about the train stations, you talk about the Grand Central. And when you talk about the Hyderpasa station, people need to look that up and Google it. It's this huge, ornate building in Istanbul. And then it goes down to this slat shingled roof. It could be tin. And Jane, when I read that, and when I reread that, because I, I read it more than once, which is wonderful to do with poetry, is to read it more than once and let it sink in. But it it took me, I must say, to Africa. That was the first place I went. And I could see the images of many people mm. who lived in these slanted roof tin shelters. Then the next lines, you put two words together. You put bandaged with rivets and rubies. And then you took us out into the whole earth. And I thought of the earth, the breath of the earth. So, the, so I just wanted to share with you why I picked that poem. It's, it's not a long poem, but it contains so much. I would love to ask you to reveal to me or, or talk about this poem for you. Yes. Well, you know, for me, writing any poem is always an act of discovery. I never know what I'm going to say. The poem begins to speak and it tells me things. I feel like writing is as much an act of listening as it is of conducting or composing. Um, some inner voice begins to speak and shows me what it is I'm thinking about that I didn't yet know I was thinking about until the words arrive. And I love your appreciation of, of this poem because it is trying to see 
the full range of why existence is so amazing. And you know, the turning sentence of it was was one that you didn't you didn't repeat, um, which was to be a train station of existence is no small matter. I loved it. And I that it. just <laughs> surprised me when it arrived, you know, and but it feels to me really true. Our lives are both large and small. They are both grand and uh, filled with the humility of knowing what a tiny cog we are in the great machinery of all being, and yet each cog essential. And so both the humility and the grandeur of whatever architecture our lives are giving us in any given moment, be it, you know, so many of us have passed through Grand Central Station, and it is in a way a sacred space. You know, the architecture, the height of the roof, the the constellations that are that are worked into it as, as you know, as the imagery above your head. And meanwhile, you're down there, you know, with all of the commuters, and perhaps you're on your way to work, or maybe you've got a you know, rolling, rolling piece of luggage that you're hoping nobody's going to not notice and trip over. Um, to find Hyder Pasha Station, I actually I wanted the combination of something not in America was very important to me, and then it had to be you know the equal of Grand Central in some totally different diction of existence. And so, of course, these days you can go online to do your research and, you know, you you enter into the search engine, you know, great train stations of the world. And I considered many, but the name of it really mattered. And that it be, as it turned out to be, not so familiar, but such a marvelous thing to say. I had to, again, you know, go online into the how to pronounce site to make sure I was saying it correctly. Um, but it is a magnificent station. And, you know, Istanbul is certainly as much the center of the world as New York City is. And then from that, once I had written, you know, it doesn't need to be Grand Central or Haider Pasha Station. You know, it could be this tiny shack of a minor location. Um, I did see the tin as, you know, this is a train station. It's a little siding place where, you know, maybe the engine might need a little bit of working on or whatever. And so the whole poem is this marriage of um, contrasts and the two ends of the spectrum of what is the most delicious and radiant and transcendent, and also what is the most daily and particular and intimate. You know, figs and cheeses. Both mm. of those are extraordinary flavors. They are intense and dense but they are available. I have a fig tree in my garden. Um, you know, it, it is, the whole poem is just trying to take in what does it feel like to be a human being in this world? And so that very opening sentence, I studied much and remembered little. Um, you know, it's like, this is, this is my life. It has been so broad. And yet we take only 
these, what is T.S. Eliot's old phrase, these fragments I have shored against my ruin. Whatever memories we carry, they are tiny shards of a life, and any life is a tiny shard of the shared life of existence of which we are part. And all of that was what this poem was trying to uh, say thank you to, fundamentally. Thank ah. you. Thank you for allowing me to live in this world, um, which has rivets, you know, repairing the broken, repairing the fractured, and rubies, you know, found glorious bits of gorgeousness buried in rock for billions of years and, and somehow come to the surface and available for us to uh, take in the gleam of. Ah. Oh. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, and and I think um, our listeners can feel what it's like to embody, to allow the body to receive a poem. Yes, I want us to really be able to talk about that in more length. But do you have a note to give us on listening with the body? Well, I think that it is the very nature of poetry to always summon from its writer, from its reader, from its listener, um, the quality of embodied wisdom. Exactly. And I want you to go further, more deeply into that in just one moment. But I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, and her newest book of poetry is the Asking, New and Selected Poems. I'm so excited about this book. <laughs> you have so much in there. And I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with poet, award-winning poet, Jane Hirschfield, and we've been together quite a few times now, and I'm always so glad to have her on, especially now. And we're talking about how to receive a poem, and I was suggesting that it could be allowing our body to receive a poem rather than going through the analytical mind. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Jane. Yeah, so so most of our intellect, all of our intellect is built on embodied experience. If you look at the etymology of any word in the language, however abstract it seems, take the word abstract, 
within that word is the old verb root having to do with pulling. It is a physical word. All of our thinking is made out of the shared experience that came from pre-languaged existence. Where else could you draw it from? Where else could language have been invented from except being these embodied creatures who came into the world and somehow developed the gift of expression, of naming, of saying, of communicating, of calling. Now, this is a continuum from the animals. I don't think we're exceptional. I think I have a friend who's trying to figure out, you know, how can we learn to understand better the cries of of the non-human world, the calls, the songs, the ecstasies. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll solve it. I hope, I hope so, because wouldn't we treat animals better if we understood how sophisticated they actually are inside their own lives as fully as us? Um, but, you know, to take in a poem is also an experience of your connection with everything the poem evokes. And so if you're going to understand a shed or a ruby or a fig in a poem, you do that with your entire life's relationship and knowledge to these things. Life would be so thin if we didn't bring our entire experience into it. And so also comes, you know, the grief of transience, the exuberance of, you know, the sort of cartwheeling of the world and its gorgeousness. All of these things, we feel them in our body. We only know through our body. Now, a conversation you and I are not going to have is about why AI can't actually write a good poem. <laughs> um, and, you know, no. I think a great deal of that has to do with the fact that an AI does not have a body. It neither feels what it is saying nor feels what it is drawing from. Wow, that's profound. <laughs> that's, that's one of the best arguments I've heard for so far. It's very interesting you bring that up, Jane, because in poetry, often you help us pay attention to very small things. And it reminds me, I'm preparing the next interview I'll be doing will be with um, a guest who I've had on before, Hirsch Wilson. His book was called Firefighter Zen. He's a volunteer firefighter, a wonderful man. And his newest book is called Dog Lessons. And he works with lots of dogs. He suggests that when we walk our dogs, we are walking them down maybe a pathway that we've been down hundreds of times. Yet this dog, it's a new experience every single time. It it finds some little something new and gets all excited about this little newness and so I feel that your poetry take us from the micro, and then it oftentimes ends up in the macro. And one of those poems that I think takes us there, it's called Mosses. Yes. And I would love for you to read to us that poem, Mosses. Happily. This poem came from 
a special feature that was in the New York Times and can be found uh, about the discovery of these mosses, and it has the most beautiful photographs and images in it. I, I commend it to people to search it out. Um, mosses. And here's the epigraph from the story. In the Mojave Desert, a translucent crystal offers bryophytes much-needed respite from the heat of the sun. Now, that's already a poem in itself. Um, so anyhow, that was in the Times, uh, July 29th, 2020. And I knew immediately I was going to write about it. It took me such a long time to both write this poem and then find an ending for it. Um, much longer than usual. But here is here is how it finally came out um, in Scientific American, which just delights me that that <laughs> since I am a poet who who um is very engaged with the marriage of the imagination and the sciences, I just love that I had a poem in Scientific American. Mosses. For hypolithic mosses, it seems, four percent of daylight is right. They live, the headline says, by sheltering under a parasol of translucent quartz. The crystal scatters the light's ultraviolet, dilutes its heat, traps the night's condensed moisture to moss-sized rain. I think of these mosses and consider. Perhaps we too are mosses, evolving to the parch of our self-made Mojaves. Unable to bear the full brightness, the full seeing. To recognize fully the Amazon burning, the Arctic burning, the monarch's smoke-colored missing migration. An experiment not meant to last. And yet we found shelter within it. We pondered our lives and the lives of others, thirsted, slept. To the implausible green of existence, for better, for worse, we offered our four percent portion of praises. For better, for worse, our four percent portion of comprehension. Yeah, uh, we ponder our lives and the lives of others at the implausible green of existence. Yeah, you take us to these tiny little moss sheltered under this crystal and getting a little bit of moisture, and here we are in our lives, and yet we are part of this kinship of, of all life. Yes, and the recognition, I think, of that kinship is what will allow us, if we do, to change our course and allow our species and all other species to move forward in time into a viable biosphere, into a world where we who are so fragile, as those mosses are so fragile, might live, might continue to live. And, you know, it might be, I've never quite made this part of the poem conscious before, because one doesn't analyze one's own poems so much. But, you know, maybe the the analogy to that desert quartz 
which shelters the mosses from just baking and drying up in the in the sun and dying, maybe our human analogy to that could be thought of as our sense of kinship and connection, mm-hmm. our love for what we are part of. And this poem, like many, many of my poems uh, increasingly over the years, was written in the awareness of the possibility of extinction. Um, you know, the, the, the climate crisis and the crisis of toxins and of waste and of destruction, you know, it's not only climate change. There are many ways we damage the earth by our rather thoughtless extravagance and unthinking enjoyment of what, you know, modernity has brought us. I never want in my poems to point a finger and condemn, because that is not the path to any solution. It just makes people um, either frightened or aggravated or throws them into despair, which is equally um, disastrous. You can touch despair. I think despair is very... I'm sorry, I'm sort of going off on a tangent here. This Um, is an important tangent, though, please. Yeah. So, so people have different relationships to despair. And some of my friends think it is terribly important that especially young people not experience it because it is so undoing. And I have a slightly different understanding of despair, which is for me, despair is the thing that when you feel it, and I do feel it quite regularly as, you know, the barrage of news enters, enters my awareness, but it is so unbearable that despair for me is a spur towards countering it, towards answering it, towards finding a way past it. Despair is not for me um, what might be called clinical depression. Despair for me is a glimpse of something that I know is intolerable, unbearable, and so it causes me to work all the harder towards a future, you know, far beyond and past my own small life. Um, it, it is a spur. And so I do not want to not experience anything. You know, any the, the old um, sentence from the Roman uh, Terence, nothing human is foreign to me. I want to experience everything that human beings experience, but the dance of um, spiritual practice and of resilience asks of us in part to recognize that none of these things is a permanent condition, that everything changes. And in any moment, it is perhaps our task as a human still able to Um, put your own molecule of intention onto the tiller of the world to move toward the good, to move toward the sense of shared fate, to move toward gratitude, to move toward hope. Um, and, And I do think this is possible. And the worse the moment is, you know, that black moment when you just feel like, will I be able to bear witnessing the next 25 years? 
which is about how how long I expect to um, remain on this planet if I follow the family genetics. And you know what what will we see as we make this transition from one way of being on this planet to another? And there's no promises. Human beings have lived through the worst many times. And I found myself, very quickly, I found myself in my car a couple of months ago, suddenly blurting out of the blue, I will outlive this. (laughs) Ah, I love that. I I will outlive this. (laughs) Thank you, Jane. I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, and we're talking about... uh, how poetry can help us in these despairing times, so to speak. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, and she's, as you have heard, an award-winning poet. And if you want to know more about her work, uh, first of all, you could go to Wikipedia. It has a wonderful entry for Jane Hirschfield. But um, if you want to know about her presentations, she herself doesn't maintain a website, but her agent does. And so you can go to barclayagency.com forward slash speakers forward slash Jane dash Hurstfield. So uh, you could go there and, and they keep track of her mini presentations. So that would be up to date or go to the Wikipedia page to find out more about her. And Jane, what I would love to talk about right now has to do with so many of my friends are writing poetry. I mean, I'm amazed. Uh, Amrita, my circle sister, is a spiritual practice. She's been writing a poem a day for over 365 days. I mean, she's well into their next year. Mm-hmm. And my sister, she's confined to a bed in a long-term rehab place. And so physically, she's confined, but emotionally, she writes poetry, and she is in a huge space of expansiveness in living in this wonderful, imaginal world that's way beyond her bedside. And my chorus leader, Benjamin Mertz, he recently, he's biracial, and for the first time, he went to Africa. And when people asked him about his trip, he he has no words. Mm. He can't say what that trip was about, except that he wrote 30 pages of poetry. That's the only way that he had of conveying the depth of feeling that he got from putting his feet on that soil. And so I I would love for you 
to say anything about this. I think it's an explosion of poetry right now that people are realizing that it is such a wonderful way to express themselves. They can't help themselves but do it. Are, are you finding, are you running across that at all in your presentations? Well, you know, I have always felt this to be the case. Um, one of my lifelong theories is that every single person writes three great poems over the course of their life. It's just that if they don't ordinarily swim in the waters of poetry, they may not know they've done it. All they know is they wrote something. But every once in a while, you know, for, for my entire life, because I'm the poet my friends know, something will happen and someone will write something and they will show it to me. And I will just look at it and say, this is spectacular. Do you have any idea what you've done? Um, so, you know, is it is it new? Is it a change? Or have people always been doing it and, and um, our awareness of it? I think it is true that the more dire the times, the more poetry is needed. You know, there is the famous short poem by Bertolt Brecht called Motto, you know, in the dark times, will there be singing? Yes, there will be singing of the dark times. Um, this is this is what poetry exists to serve. It exists to serve us when we are otherwise unable to hold the great paradoxical and enormously powerful currents of our lives in any other language. It exists to assist us through transition moments, through deaths, through falling in love and weddings, through births, um, through the cataclysm of the current moment. And so, you know, yes, as more and more people become aware of the fact that we are living inside a cataclysm, it makes perfect sense that more and more people are finding their way to poems, but poems have always been there to find your way toward. Um, if they did not belong to every human being through all time, past, present, and future, what would they be? You know, it's like laughing or singing or, you know, when we're young and still able to, turning a cartwheel because the day is beautiful. This is what human beings do. This is how we hold our lives and allow our lives to hold us and to pass through us. And one of those vocabularies of being is the making of language that is more intense, less constrained, uh, freer, you used the word imaginal earlier, you know, that has more of both image and music and the freedom to break all the rules and the way the heart can speak in its most private corner, which is nonetheless available to any other human being who is given access to those words. Oh, beautifully said, beautifully said. And going going back to the idea we were talking about earlier about despair, you often combine your poetry with science or your concerns about the climate and things like that that really concern us all. And I want to go back, Jane, if we could, 
to go back to that moment in 2017. Oh, yes. It was a huge march for science, and it happened in Washington, D.C. Thousands and thousands of people showed up. And I remember this date because even here in Santa Rosa, we participated in that march, and we had our march for science right here in my community. We didn't travel across the country, but we participated And you were the one who organized Poets for Science as a component of that march. And you were um, able to present to that huge crowd one of your poems. And I would love for you to, number one, share that poem with us, but also help us to know what that was like for you in that moment. Mm, Thank you. So I'll I'll give the background. So the title of the poem is On the Fifth Day. And the fifth day it is referring to is not the one from the Bible, as 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 people might might think, but it was the fifth day of the uh prior administration, as I will refer to it. The fifth day that they were in place, the White House took down from its website all information having to do with climate change, and also on the same day instructed every scientist who worked directly for any federal agency to not speak about their work in public unless it was approved by the politically appointed head of of the administration. So it was an act of, you know, hubris and censorship and a declaration of, you know, pretty much war against the future, as I felt it. But, you know, for the last 25 years of my life, at least, um, many of my closest friends have been research scientists. And so I felt this deeply personally. I felt it personally on behalf of all beings, and I felt it personally on behalf of my friends. And so by the end of that day, I had written this poem. I sent it to uh, three friends. They immediately said, uh, can we send this to our friends? And, you know, by two days later, I was getting thank yous relayed back to me from all over the country. And the same day that that happened was the day that, you know, a group of of actual scientists um, began to organize. The, the Women's March had just happened, and using that as a kind of, you know, um, model, they organized the March for Science, which, like the Women's March, did happen all over the country and beyond. It happened all over the world. So the same poem that I read on the mall in D.C. to 50,000 people, the former president of Ireland read at the end of the march in Dublin, and a 13-year-old girl read at a march in France, and a German newspaper published, and the Washington Post published. And so, you know, it was it was all a little staggering in terms of feeling like I had written something that was of service. So let me now read the poem. On the fifth day. On the fifth day, the scientists who studied the rivers were forbidden to speak or to study the rivers. The scientists who studied the air were told not to speak of the air, and the ones who worked for the farmers were silenced, and the ones who worked for the bees. Someone 
from deep in the badlands began posting facts. The facts were told not to speak and were taken away. The facts, surprised to be taken, were silent. Now it was only the rivers that spoke of the rivers and only the wind that spoke of its bees, while the unpausing factual buds of the fruit trees continued to move toward their fruit. The silence spoke loudly of silence, and the rivers kept speaking of rivers, of boulders and air. Bound to gravity, earless and tongueless, the untested rivers kept speaking. Bus drivers, shelf stockers, code writers, machinists, accountants, lab techs, cellists kept speaking. They spoke the fifth day of silence. And when I read that poem to the 50,000 or so people who were amassed on the Washington Mall, and this is an experience that no poet ever expects to have in their life, the thing that really stunned me was it turned out that up front near the stage, there was a big contingent of bee people dressed in bee costumes and holding bee placards. And they started shouting and jumping up and down when I read the part about the bees. And then when I read the part about the Badlands, which actually did happen, people started tweeting facts and then they were silenced. Way back in the middle of the crowd on the left, there was this roar. And I don't know who those people were, but... but. Now, I'm not used to being interrupted by cheers and shouts. You know, it almost silenced me there at the podium. I was I was so, you know, uh, stunned by this. But you really do come to feel, and, you know, uh, very unexpected for me, a person who began writing poems and hiding them under the mattress as a child. I was not a person who showed my work or trotted it out or wanted to be seen ever. Um, you know, to write a few poems in this life which are of service to people and can step into a moment and speak into that moment and be received, it is very humbling. And it continues to speak to this moment because we need it more than ever. Thank you so much. I'm here with Jane Hirschfeld. And her newest book is The Asking, New and Selected Poems. It has poems from many of her other books, but it also has new poems. I'm just loving it. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Thank you.
I'm here with poet Jane Hirschfield, and I'm just loving being with you. It's so heartful. And I would love to have you recite the poem because we're talking about this newest book, this newest volume called The Asking. The title of this particular volume comes from a poem itself. So I would love for you to read that poem for us, and then let's um, have some conversation on the other side of the reading. Yes. So every New Year's morning, I like to start the year by writing a poem as my first act of the year. Counting New Year's morning, what powers yet remain to me? The world asks, as it asks daily, and what can you make, can you do, to change my deep, broken, fractured? I count this first day of another year what remains. I have a mountain, a kitchen, two hands, can admire with two eyes the mountain, actual, recalcitrant, shuffling its pebbles, sheltering foxes and beetles can make black-eyed peas and collards, can make from last year's late-ripening persimmons a pudding, can climb a stepladder, change the bulb in a track light. For years, I woke each day first to the mountain, then to the question. The feet of the new sufferings followed the feet of the old, and still they surprised. I brought salt, brought oil to the question, brought sweet tea, brought postcards and stamps for years, each day, something. Stone did not become apple. War did not become peace. Yet joy still stays joy. Sequins stay sequins. Words still bespangle, bewilder. Today I woke without answer. The day answers, unpockets a thought as though from a friend. Don't despair of this falling world, not yet. Didn't it give you the asking? Wow. Wow, there we go. And that's where the name of this volume comes from. And that is the question that you're putting out to us about despair. And is your poetry the microcosm and the macrocosm, the small and the mm. large, and how it's all connected? And we talked about kinship and how it's all in kinship and how you have some poems about how every action matters. It is a contribution. And so, even if it seems insurmountable, the challenges before us, we should not shy away from making that contribution to have a reply to the asking. That's exactly right. And, and you know, I mean, what's described in here, you know, each day I brought, you know, salt, oil, sweet tea, postcards and stamps to the questions. I actually did that for five years. Every single day I took some explicit action, knowing it might be absolutely futile and, and you know, not count for anything. 
but the practice of doing something every day to try to move us all towards a more benevolent future. It changed my life and it might help something and multiply me by a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million people all doing the same thing. We do begin to make a difference. I feel as if it is very important, again, going back to what we spoke about earlier, this question of, you know, how, how do we, how do we meet the despair which inevitably will rise up in us in the darkest moments? How do we meet it? And I think one of the answers is the sense of agency. We feel despair when we feel there's nothing we can do. And the thing about poetry, as one of the technologies of antidote, is you can always write a poem, as you were describing of your bedridden friend. Even if there is nothing more you can do, if you can bring one word next to another with the same newness as that dog walking down the street you were talking about, the world is awake and full of possibility again. And if you feel possibility, that will lighten despair. It will cut windows and doors in your despair and give you a way to walk back into the world with others, with what in Buddhism, the 10th ox herding picture uh, famously describes as bliss bestowing hands. You know, the other thing about poems that hold darkness, that look at darkness, that address darkness, the reason they are good poems, if they are good poems, is because no matter what they are looking at, they also hold beauty. They also hold connection. They hold the living voice and the living hand and the witness. They hold the sense of newness and possibility and potential and hope that all art of any kind in any genre holds. It says this world can be made new, and it is malleable to you yourself putting one word next to another in a way that a spark flies out, and you remember how alive you are, and are so grateful for that. Our lives are so brief, existence is so large, and look, we get to feel the entirety of it, every breath we take while we are here. You are helping to remind us to forever be vigilant to our being called upon to witness both the beauty and the despair. I mean, but but to not forget the beauty yes. because we're being pounded by all that's wrong and that's not giving towards right. life. But at the same time, then we are being called to equally witness the beauty. I know your poetry is filled with that, with both and. Very much so. And I have taken up a practice. I learned a phrase when I went and gave some readings in Australia. Apparently, an Australian exclamation of happiness is to simply say, you beauty. 
And it's not necessarily addressed to a specific you, you beauty. And I love that phrase so much that I took it as a practice every morning when I first open my eyes, whatever day it is I am meeting, to have the first thing I say to it be, you beauty, you beauty. And I won't read the poem because I know time is short, but I'll just say, you know, so that last poem I read was one of the new poems in the book that hasn't appeared before. And another one is a poem with the title, Each Morning Calls Us to Praise This World That Is Fleeting. And, you know, that is the same practice. And I do believe that under almost any circumstance, it is possible to find some gleam that reminds you that we can, after all, only see darkness if there is some other side visible. Pitch darkness is invisible to us. But if you can feel the pain of grief, of suffering, the fear for the future, the worry for, you know, the coming generations, the worry for, you know, the, the small beings in the ocean caught up in currents they did not themselves make. If you can feel that as pain, it is because you can also love them. There is no reason for abandoning the love and connection because it is what awakens in us this great desire to care for not only all beings, um, so yes, all beings, also our own life, which is part of all beings' lives. You don't hate yourself either. You don't erase yourself. It is a continuous fabric. And to be kind to your beloved, your friend, your child, and yourself is continuous with being kind to strangers in the great, you know, the Abrahamic tradition and the desert tradition all over the world. If somebody comes to your door, first you feed them. First you give them a bed. Then you ask them their story. It is not about who are you? Are you good enough to take in? No, if a stranger arrives at your door, you feed them. And that ancient tradition, which is in all especially difficult environments, desert places, you know, places that are hard, you appreciate the difficulty of the journey. And you first express, we are family, we are kin. And then you say, and who are your people? Yes, I love it. I love it. Oh, Jane, I, I just have so appreciated this very extraordinary and special time with you. I thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions family. Thank you, Justine. It has been, as it always is, a complete joy to talk with you. The newest volume is called The Asking New and Selected Poems. And if you want to know more about Jane, you can go to her Wikipedia page. That's a really great page to really find out all that she's accomplished. But if you want to know about her newest offerings uh, in her talks and events, you can go to barclayagency.com forward slash speakers 
forward slash Jane dash Hirschfield. You can also go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org to find that as well. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3,796. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions.